I say amen to that prayer with you. We want to see Christ. We're going to see him in his word. We're just not going to see him from the passage that you would expect. We've been in John together, and we're going to take a brief pause in our series in the Gospel of John in light of the summer. It presents unique opportunities to hear from some missionaries and others who will be in town, and we didn't want to break up the exposition for that. And also, it presents unique opportunities for us to hit things that are important to the life of the church overall. So we'll pick up in John 17 and at some point in August, but I am excited about being able to continue to point you to Christ from His Word. But today, we'll look at Acts 6 to do that. Acts chapter 6, please turn with me there, and I'll read this story for us in a moment. But don't be confused by that word story. What I will be reading in these few verses, what we'll be studying together, is true. It's actual. It's based on real events. And the characters represented herein are not fictional. They're real. And so what is this story about? We are kind of jumping in in the middle. The book of Acts is the true story of the risen Christ and his work to establish a people for himself through the empowerment of the Spirit. The book of Acts is the story of Christ and his goal to establish for himself a people through the empowerment of the Spirit. So often we come to the book of Acts as if it's some kind of instruction manual for church. It's not instruction. It's actually a narrative. It's a story of what God is doing. And so we want to see that. Here's the review of the story up to this point, because admittedly we're parachuting in to a particular text. The story began with a promise in chapter 1, verse 8. The risen Christ says to his disciples before he ascends to on high that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. These men up to this point have been scared to death to speak up for Jesus, and now they are on the verge of seeing whether or not this promise will come true. And against all the odds, the Spirit does show up, empowers these men to preach, and they preach on the day of Pentecost, and literally thousands of people get saved. They're they're not only converted, but they're collected into a church. Like, they become a unit They're baptized, and it says in 242 that they devote themselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer and fellowship. I mean, like, this is an amazing thing that takes place. And what's especially fascinating and important for you to understand in light of our text is that when they became like a a church, it wasn't like an official thing alone. It was very organic, like There were people who were there for Pentecost from all over the Mediterranean world, and they stayed in Jerusalem. If we had somebody visiting here today, and they had 
a religious experience or they were converted in some way, they would probably go move back home. There, the people who started following Jesus stayed. And so now you've got a bunch of basically religious refugees living with the church family. And you're wondering, how is this thing going to play out? People call America the great experiment. The church here could be labeled the great experiment. Like, really? Well, 3,000 men, which could equate to 6,000 to seven or 8,000 other people, like, will they really be able to keep this thing together and continue to grow into the uttermost parts of the earth? Like, that's the story. And, and it has, by the way, some bad guys. Every good story's got to have a problem. It's got to have an enemy, a nemesis, a bad guy. Satan, as promised in the Gospels, begins to infiltrate and sow some seeds of discord and destruction. And one of the first things to threaten this new church was none other than persecution itself. It would come from the outside. The government would hate what was happening. They would say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And this first great enemy of the church is actually overcome. In fact, Not only do some of the primary leaders get thrown into jail, but when they miraculously get released, even more people come to faith because of it. Enemy obstacle number one, overcome. Jesus is building his church. Then another tactic came into play. Satan tried uh, something different. This would be to sin in the church. He would tempt some people in the church to begin to make it all about themselves, to say that they were going to give a certain amount of money and property to the church, but they were actually only doing it to make themselves look good. And so you're kind of wondering, oh, well, will this church be just some shallow, superficial thing where people can just put on airs and make themselves look good? You wonder if it's going to maintain its purity. And what happens there? The Spirit intervenes kills those people for their sin and rebellion. The church is purified. And listen to this. It continues to grow. Imagine if somebody like died in the service here supernaturally. (laughs) What would be happening is people are like, ooh, I'd be scared of that. I don't know if I want to be a part of that, especially if it was attributed directly to God. And yet, in the book of Acts, it's actually more people respect them. Some are scared of them, and they respect them, and they don't want to join them, but even more people get saved. But then we end up with enemy number three. John Stott, the the British pastor and expositor, relates it this way. He says, the devil's next attack was the cleverest of the three. Having failed to overcome the church by either persecution or corruption, he now tried distraction. If he could preoccupy the apostles with social administration, which though essential was not their calling, they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and to preach, and so leave the church without any defense against false doctrine. Do you see this third one? It's subtle. This third attack, this third enemy that the church would have to overcome Stott calls it distraction. In the military world, we call it a false flag operation, where you pretend that something's going on over here, you make something else happen to take people's attention away from the thing that they actually need to be thinking about. Will they fall for this? That's the question before us. 
And we pick up on that story in chapter 6. Let's first read verses 1 through 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. Do you notice the problem? Remember, every good story has a problem. You see the problem of distraction right there from the very beginning. They're growing. It says that the disciples were increasing. If you're new to Christianity or to church, I'd like to introduce you to that word disciple. Sometimes people think it means, oh, those guys who follow Jesus in those stories in the Gospels. A disciple is anybody who is a learner of Jesus. It's anybody who is following him. They become his student. Um, A good word for us in our modern vernacular would be apprentices. These uh, were apprentices of Jesus. Even though he's not around, they want to take on his way of life. And there's a lot of them. It says that they were increasing. Many historians believe that at this point in the life of the church, there may be 8,000 people gathering on a regular basis under Solomon's portico. You thought this church was big when we had three to 400. Imagine 8,000. And all of you know, whether it be the increasing size of your families or the increasing size of your business. More people equals more problems. And exactly what is said here is something that is uniquely threatening to a church, especially in our own day. You could imagine this happening. It says the disciples were increasing in number, and a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, Here's the deal. There's some inevitable inefficiency from a growing group, but not only do we have a bunch of people, but now we have like charges of racially preferred care. It says the Hellenists. So what's a Hellenist? A Hellenist was simply a Greek-speaking Jew. These were the people, the Jewish people who didn't live in Jerusalem, but they lived everywhere else. And because they primarily spoke Greek and not Hebrew, they kind of assimilated into Greek culture. Nothing will affect a culture like language. And so they they could easily be considered the more worldly Jews because they were the ones that weren't as pure. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They didn't show up to temple as much. And yet when they heard the gospel, they were truly converted and became a part of the church And so you've got these Greek-speaking Jews, you've got the more Jewish Jews, the ones from Jerusalem, and the big deal comes down with the care of their widows. And you're thinking, 
who cares? Like, the government takes care of widows, right? Like, isn't that what I pay Social Security for? To make sure that, you know, or isn't that a retirement? Like, we don't think about the burden of widow care like the Jewish people did. And the reason why they were so especially concerned for the care of widows is because of the Old Testament. We saw it over and over again in our study through the Minor Prophets. God was heavily concerned in how His people treated one another, especially the poor, the marginalized, and those who were the most vulnerable. And no one was more vulnerable in the ancient Near East than a widow. There was no government system for the care of the elderly. And so it was their responsibility to be caring for one another. In fact, in Jewish circles up to this particular time, even among the normal Jews, the, the, the people would often, in most cases, have a system of a once-a-week distribution of food and clothing to all Jewish widows. And in special cases, they would have a daily meeting of more urgent needs. We think of like the government or other social programs doing this. Historically, this was always the burden of the people of God. And so they knew that to be true. Even though they were recently converted to Christ, they knew that they had a responsibility to care. And what the church was doing will blow your mind. People were selling their property and they were giving it to the church. And they were liquidating their assets to make sure that all these widows were being cared for. And inevitably, you get some complaints. You get some dissension. You get uh, unhappy people. It happens in churches, does it not? As it continues to grow, all of a sudden, there's some murmurings. That's the King James translation. A murmuring arose. I've heard murmurings before. Maybe you have too. This could be a thing that could suck the church inward. It could stop it in its tracks. Do you see how this would work? Like this would keep them from doing what Jesus seemed to be promising in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now they could get so embroiled in interpersonal conflict that they would never move beyond their own walls. It's like the, um, the Joel Chandler Harris story from Song of the South, The Tar Baby where he sets up this tar baby to try to trap the rabbit, and the more he punches at the rabbit, the more sticky it gets, and he can't get out of the situation. Like, this is like a straight-up tar baby for the church. Like, will it get stuck in its own interpersonal conflict? That's the question that we're looking at. And so we see in verse 2 that they, this 12, the, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. The thing that had produced the growth should be prioritized. And they were saying, we can't can't get caught up in this. we got to keep doing what we, we need to do. We can't give up the one thing for the other. That's what the Greek word means. We can't give up the one thing for the other. We even teach this in, uh, if you've ever taken like a basic economics class, it's really cool and kind of boring. It's funny, there's all these fancy economic concepts that just make so much sense. One of them is called opportunity cost. So if I've got $20 and I spend it on one thing, I've not only spent the $20, but I've lost the opportunity to spend the 20 somewhere else. Opportunity cost. These guys have a limited amount of time, energy, and resources. If they spend it on this one need, which is really, really important... They've lost the opportunity to spend it on the other thing that was absolutely essential. 
Keep those two words in mind. Important and essential. The Word of God is the thing that they said that they didn't want to leave. So far in the story, in the story of the church, the Word of God has been the the thing that gives life. Look, just if you want to flip, go to 241 and notice this. So those who received His Word, Peter's preaching about Christ, were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. What was it that brought the 3,000 souls in? It was the hearing and responding to the word about Christ. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 4. You see the operative nature of the word. But many many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. They went from 3,000 to 5,000. And in both cases, the word was the thing that made the difference. So we would call this like absolutely essential. Like, you got to have it. And then there was something really, really important going on. That was their care for one another. Like, it was so important that they not leave these widows alone. It says that we can't leave uh, the Word of God to serve tables. Sometimes when we think of tables, you think of like um, what happens at a restaurant when you have a waiter or waitress come to you at your table like, I used to read this text, and I would imagine, like, the, the apostles walking around with, like, food on a, on a big old platter and, like, serving people. It's not quite that. The word tables that's used here just means the official place of business or distribution. In fact, this is the same word that's used when Jesus overturns the tables in the temple. It could be the money tables. It could be the food tables. We're talking about the place of official transaction. They're saying, we, as important as this is to make sure that we have a life or death issue on our hands with racial tensions within the church, you would think there can't be a more important issue. Well, they found one. For them, the essential thing was the continued distribution of the Word of God. And this other thing, they weren't saying, oh, it doesn't matter, they'll figure it all out. They said, we can't, we can't leave this to go do the other. It's that opportunity cost again. Think of essential. Essential means you have to have it to live. Essential things for us include food, air, water, right? That's non-negotiable. You will die without that. But what are some important things? Well, I could go with uh, hygiene. I say that to all of you who are 13 and under. (laughs) It is important that you take a bath and brush your teeth. You may think, I won't die if I don't brush my teeth. You may die sooner. (laughs) It's not essential, it's important. What are other important things? Well, I think of a house. I think of exercise. It's it's this funny thing that we do in our minds sometimes where we, we think the only options are essential and not important at all. Essential and worthless. And yet the Bible actually has categories for things that are essential, things that are important, and things that are not as important. What it's saying here is that the guys were going to have to realize the opportunity cost of investing in the important thing and not having the time and energy to invest in the essential thing. So what will they do? What are they going to do? This is a story. Are they, are they going to advance the Word of God, or are they going to let that collapse under the weight of this racially charged life-or-death need in the church? So, we move from the problem to the plan. There's a plan here. Look at verse 3. 
Therefore, brothers, they, after, remember, they've called this group together, the whole discipleship group, that's thousands of people. I can't imagine how they projected to thousands, but somehow they got this message across. Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now notice this. They, they actually go back to the church and say, we've got a problem. It's funny. Sometimes it's tempting to make the leadership in the church, like give them a problem like it's a me problem when it's actually a we problem. We all have a deal here. Interestingly, in this case, the disciples recognize it, and so they say, hey, church, you need to pick some godly people to handle these high-level problems so that the word can still go forward powerfully. Now, don't try to apply this yet. Just hear the story. It's a, it's a pretty decent plan. Uh, they want to make sure that the people do the important stuff so that the leadership, in this case, can do the essential stuff. And, and I like what they say. This, this should stand out to you as well. It's just fascinating that in the story it says you should pick out from among you seven men listen to this, of good repute, that means good reputation, full of the Spirit. So these are people who seem to be dominated by the Word of God, dominated by the Spirit. The word full means controlled by, controlled by the Spirit, and of wisdom. They've got a good head on their shoulders. Wisdom does express itself in multiple avenues. Maybe it was relational wisdom. Maybe it was logistical wisdom. But these people are wise. They're just, they're good, godly people. And the apostles, then, what are they going to do? It says that they will devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what seems fascinating to me is that the standard of leadership between this group of seven and the group of apostles would both be based on, hear me well please, convictions and character, not merely competence. Convictions and character, in this case, trump competence. If you were running an organization with thousands of people in it and you had a high-level problem like this where it seemed like there was racial tension and it could be life or death on the line for the well-being of some of the marginalized and poor, who do you normally think of to delegate stuff to? I want the guy with the great resume. I want somebody who is gifted, I want somebody who can get stuff done. I want to know that he's got a track record, maybe in, in social administration, like maybe he's been in experienced situations like this before. We typically think we need a competent person to come alongside here. We need somebody who's gifted. And yet, what does the Word of God prioritize in this particular story? They don't go all in on gifting. They go all in on godliness. We need a godly person. We need somebody who's filled with the Spirit. We need somebody who is absolutely surrendered to Him. And look, the question before us is, will this work? 
It seems kind of idealistic. It seems rather pie in the sky. I mean, really, will this actually work? Can you entrust such high-level responsibility to just what I would call mere godly people? And is it really right for what seems to be some of the best leaders in the church to not be meeting this need, but just to continue to, listen to this, devote themselves, stay committed to the ministry of the Word and prayer? The word ministry is fascinating. It comes from the same word, listen to this, it comes from the same word that we get, the word deacon. You take the word deacon and you turn it into a verb, that's the word that's here. Serve, serve tables earlier, deacon tables. Serve the word and pray to deacon that. They said, we're going to deacon, (laughs) use the verb, we're going to deacon the word of God and prayer, and we want these people to deacon these problems. The priority is clearly the word going forward. This would be reflected over and over again in, in the pages of Scripture where, the, where Paul would actually make it explicit in his epistles that, that there should be people who are absolutely devoted to the propagation of the word. Even to the point in 1 Corinthians 9 of some people doing that vocationally, like making their living doing that. It's always the priority of, of the Word. So you had this, these, these teams developed, potentially, of committed, praying Word bearers who'd stay focused on the task, and then some other really godly people who would take care of the other. That's the plan. But now let's note the performance. They're going to they're gonna walk this thing out. They've planned it. Let's see how they live it out, the performance. This is in verse 5. And six, it says, and what they said pleased the whole congregation, the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Hey, you want to see something really cool? You would think that they would have picked an even distribution since it was kind of like a Greek-Jewish problem. Like, we need three Greek guys and we need three Jewish guys. You know what they did? They picked all Greek-speaking guys. You see this in the names. All of the names are Hellenistic names. You're like, what's going on? Like, why? Why did they pick these particular guys? Remember, it wasn't about their race. It was about their righteousness, their godliness. These happen to be the outstanding godly guys in the group. So they went with the godliest seven that they could find. And then they actually present this to the leaders. The leaders agreed with them. And then this cool thing takes place. It takes place in churches even today, but it it started in the Old Testament. It continued here. It says that they set them before the apostles, and the leadership at that point would lay hands on them. You're like, what's going on there? It's a recognition of relationship. It's the recognition of a transfer of responsibility. When we lay hands on an elder, for example, when it says lay hands on no man suddenly, it doesn't mean don't strangle somebody quickly. (laughs) It means don't transfer that responsibility lightly. Here, the whole congregation needed to see who these people were because they were now going to be the point person for any huge issue not related to the ministry of the word and prayer. 
I got to stick to the story. I wanted to tell you another story. I'll tell it later, maybe. In this story, these guys are public. And so the big question for us at this point is, all right, they've done their performance. What's the product of this? How'd this thing play out? We didn't read it yet. I intentionally didn't read it. Here's the punchline. Look at verse 7. What happens? And the word of God continued to increase, and the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Remember the story was about Christ's church advancing amid all obstacles. We met the third great enemy here of distraction And we're wondering, like, okay, will it succeed? Is this plan worth pursuing? Absolutely. It says that the Word of God continued to spill forth. It continued to go forward in such a way that even more people, more people were converted. More were added to their number. And then, listen to this, even some of the hardest people on the planet, the priests, even the priests were converted. And notice what it says of them. It says, a great many of the priests became, and this is just another synonym for receiving Jesus. Hear me well if you're considering following Christ. It says this, they became obedient to the faith. Sometimes we think of someone being genuinely converted as only intellectually assenting to uh, the, the existence of Jesus as Lord and the fact that he died on the cross as Savior. And yet, at the same time, the Scriptures will also describe someone as being genuinely converted as one who is obedient to the faith. They now want to live their lives in light of what has been revealed as true. What did that? It wasn't a fancy program. It wasn't peer pressure. It was the power of the Word of God. We read it earlier today in Isaiah 55. And I was reminded this morning in the prayer time by another one of the brothers of Isaiah 55. We've seen the truth of Isaiah 55 in our own lives in recent weeks. Maybe in your yard. It's been like mine. If you only have irrigation in a few little spots... My yard's been a brown, dead mess for a really long time. And you know what? When I left it this morning, I'm like, man, I got to cut the grass. <laughs> it's the rainy season, and the rain has done its thing. It has taken that which was dead. It has given life. I mean, it seemed impossible for anything to grow, and now it seems impossible for it not to. That's what the Word of God does, my friends. That's what Isaiah 55 is all about. The Word of God keeps going forward. It keeps producing life. It does its thing. And so just keep the Word going forward. The hero of this story, dear friends, is not the apostles. It's not like you have to have them. It's not by application. It's pastors. The church is pastors. The hero of the story is not the seven. Or if we were to try to apply it, the deacons. The hero of the story is the Word of God. The Word of God continues to do its thing. The Word of God continues to make the difference. There is no place too big. There is no person too hard for the Word of God. And let me make this really clear, especially for those of you who may be visiting. When you hear me say the Word of God, 
I am not just talking about the Bible in and of itself. I'm talking about the Bible as its central message is about the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth to live the righteous life you couldn't live, who died on your behalf to satisfy God's wrath, and who rose again so that you could have life eternal. That is the word of God at focus. Some people think, well, if I just magically read like from Nehemiah, all of a sudden that's going to change my heart. Well, God could use that. (laughs) But the word that they were preaching according to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 5 was the word of God about Christ empowered by the Spirit. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? He says, "I, I taught nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. He says, I delivered unto you what was of first importance. What is of first importance? What's the first thing that you've got to get to get anything else? That Christ was died, buried, and rose again for sin. Friends, this is the hero of the story. The Spirit is pointing us to what Jesus has done. And when people begin to learn what Jesus has done, they see their need for Him, they respond to Him, they want to love Him, obey Him, and trust Him with their lives. And so, the story ends. The Word of God wins. The enemy of distraction is defeated by proper delegation so that the focus could be on the declaring of the Word of God. So, um, that's a cool story, Justin. Uh, what does that have to do uh, with us? <laughs> um, we didn't really talk that much about me and my life and my felt needs and what I should be doing in light of this. Well, give me a second to do that. I think there are three ways that this text, this story, should be impacting us. Maybe three habits that we should be cultivating. The first one is simply to lean in. To lean in. What do I mean by that? I mean lean into the power of the Word of God. There are some massive problems out there. In society as a whole and in your own life, all the elders do it. But I know this week when I've been praying for you as a church and I work my way through name after name after name, I'm thinking, wow, life is hard. There is some heavy stuff going on in every one of your lives. I don't know anybody that's just got to made in the shade. And you're like, what is going to make the difference? How in the world will anything ever come of this hot mess of a life that I have Lean in, dear friends, on the power of the Word of God about Christ. I know it seems so ethereal, and it seems so distant, but the Word of God would eventually take hold in such a way that it would change lives, it would change families, and it would change nations. It does its thing. It brings life where there is death. Lean in to the power of the Word. I think this is especially appropriate for those of us who are pastors, elders. We talk about this often, but I think it's good for me to say publicly in front of the whole church just to keep us all accountable. Uh, Dear brothers, it is our responsibility for us to stay focused on the prayerful dissemination of the Word. It is so easy for pastors to get distracted. 
I think sometimes we think that the apostles were all the, they, like, they were all the time speaking directly from like the Spirit speaking through them like a microphone. Did you under, understand like they had to study the Old Testament too? <laughs> like they, they were like preaching from Psalms and they were preaching from Isaiah and like they were studying the Word of God. Like even the Apostle Paul, we saw this in 2 Timothy a few weeks ago where he's sitting in that Roman prison says, hey, can you go grab my books and my parchments because I, I've got some work to do here. Like, <laughs> it's funny. Um, my parents, uh, my father in particular, did not want me to be a pastor initially because he didn't think pastors were respected and uh, the general southern uh, stereotype of a pastor is that the guy doesn't do anything but play golf all week, and then he just gets up and, like, rants for an hour. And then he gets to go back and do his golf thing, you know, throughout the week. I don't, I, look, I'm not defending myself here, but I, I hope you understand that, like, what it takes to be able to properly share with you the Word of God, like, this isn't just, like, coming ex nihilo, <laughs> It takes a lot of time to make sure that I got the text right, that I've understood it in light of what you guys need, that I understood it right in light of the rest of the Bible. And every one of our elders, when they're doing that, I don't care if it's in a parenting class or a small group or in a Christian Life Institute seminar or in a missions teaching, like, are trying to do the exact same thing, and they're trying to do it prayerfully. Because that's the other temptation, is you just do this thing all in the power of your own performance. Like, you know, I studied well, I put some good illustrations together, this thing's really going to take off, and it could be dead as a doornail before it ever leaves your lips. I would ask us, I say this to the guys publicly with self at the center of this, if we were to take the amount of time that we spent eldering or shepherding, let's just ask ourselves, how much of it is actually devoted to the preaching of the word and prayer? In light of what I understand in this text, this is what this congregation needs. And it's something we should take really seriously. I say this not only to us who are pastors, but I say it to the people of the church. You want the word to spread? You need to keep the leaders focused on evangelism and edification of the word of God. That's essential. And those important things... Either you need to handle or we need to find some really, really godly, trustworthy people to handle them. That's the church's responsibility. We, we have to. I'm not saying it's unimportant. We have to evidence obedience to one another care. This church should be caring for one another like a family. And I know that there are lonely people here and there are hurting people here and needs go unmet. I mean, there are personal needs that don't get met around here and then there are also programming needs that don't get met. Like, it, it's a big deal. I'm not saying like, all right, as long as the word's being preached, all is well, we can forget about the rest of it. The rest of it matters too. But we lean in on the word by saying, okay, um, I could step up and meet that need. I could help in this way. Or I know this guy or this lady... They're super godly. Man, they really love Jesus. They know the Bible really well. And I think they'd probably do a good job at, at meeting X, Y, or Z neat. Well, we should do that. Avail ourselves of this. So we need to lean in. We need to lean in on, on the Word of God, which leads to something closely related, secondarily. There's a second habit that I think is derived from this story. We should seek out. Lean in, seek out. Seek out 
godly people who we really trust. No, we really trust, not I really trust. The church needs to trust the individual. We seek out people that that we trust. We need to look for more exemplary servants, these these super godly, like elder-qualified individuals, but not necessarily gifted at teaching of the Word. When you read 1 Timothy 3 that talks about the office of elder and the office of deacon, which is where this story is like, seems to be the basis of this office that would come. The only difference between the two, the only difference, is that one of them is competent, there is a competency, in conveying the Word of God, communicating the Word of God, whether in a large setting or a smaller one. They can clarify the Word of God for people. The other one is really good at serving. So you're like, hmm, who would these people be? Well, just think about it this way. Do you think of them as the kind of person like, hey, you know what? This person is like exemplary in their Christ-likeness. This person should be like a leader in the church. I don't know that they can teach that well, but like they're super godly. Like that's who we're looking for. I'll tell you the story that I disciplined myself not to tell you. There's all kinds of crazy views of what a deacon is in a church, by the way. In the Roman Catholic Church, a deacon is anyone who is in seminary training to begin a ministry. Well, that's not what a deacon is in the Bible. In good old-fashioned independent Baptist fundamentalist churches, deacons are like the house of representatives, and the pastor is like the president, and they like there's this accountability mechanism. Well, there's nothing in here about that. Uh, in another church uh, that I've been a part of in the past, a deacon was literally anybody that wore a name tag. <laughs> and and it, the, 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 uh, the exegesis was rather simple. They said, well, a, the deacon means servant. If they're serving, they're a deacon. So we had 800 of them. <laughs> I tried to fix this. Um, it didn't work. But the, the problem with that is, yeah, we all, in a sense, serve. But not all of us need to be recognized by the congregation as the go-to person for that kind of service. I would hope that, uh, it's in Romans, the book of Romans, Paul says of the church at Rome, hey, you're all able to teach one another. Well, don't we all minister the Word of God to one another, like in our homes? But not all of us are, like, entrusted with teaching the church in an official capacity, the same thing's true of the service. A a, a deacon is someone who is a a really godly individual. I love the way um, Matt Smithhurst put it in his book on deacons. He says, um, deacons are not the church's spiritual council of directors, nor the executive board to whom the pastor CEO answers. They are the cavalry of servants deputized to execute the vision by coordinating various ministries. Deacons are like a congregation's special ops force carrying out unseen assignments with fortitude and joy. If you want to find a qualified deacon, don't look at his garage to see how many tools he has. Don't look at his financial portfolio to see how many investments he has. Don't look at his company to see how many employees he has. Look first at his attitude his character, his life? Is he eager to listen or is he angling to be heard? Is he humble and flexible or does he always insist on his own way? Does he covet status 
or does he yearn to serve? Friends, the way that this plays out in the life of a church like ours is elders lead the ministry through the preaching of the word and prayer. Deacons facilitate the ministry and the congregation does the ministry. And we're all in it together. It's a whole body event. So lean in, seek out. I seek out, I want to make this really practical, and I'm going to date this sermon so terribly that nobody will ever want to listen to it. But I would say that even in the next two weeks, it would serve our church well if some of you would let the elders know who you think stands out in that exemplary way. You know those little connect cards? They're not just for visitors. What would be really helpful is if you took a connect card, you took it home with you, or maybe you already could think of somebody right now and you write on the back of that thing, deacon slash deaconess, and some names of people that you're like, they're super godly. I don't know that they could teach, but I know that I trust them. Like, that would do us well. If we had a good collection of names over the next couple weeks that we could then present back to you to affirm as deacons, that would serve us well. You know, as of just uh, six weeks ago, we had four deacons. Now, because two went to Orange Tree, we're down to two deacons. I just have a feeling that there's other super godly, well-qualified individuals in this church who could help facilitate ministry around here. And I really do, this is as practical as it gets. Let's seek these people out. Just write down their name. Drop it in one of the boxes, and we would love to consider that together as a church in the next couple of weeks. In fact, even to help with that, because um, I realize that you may not remember a word that I say, we've bought some little booklets on what deacons do. They'll be here this week. We want to distribute them next week so we can be praying about this together as a church. Lean in. Seek out. And here's the last one. This is where we're finished. This is my favorite point. You ready? Last one. Here's an implication. Look past. Look past. <laughs> Remember the hero of the story. The hero of the story, what causes the growth in the church is not the deacon, it's not the elder, it is the word of God. In fact, did you know that the term deacon, minister, servant, is applied even to our Lord Jesus Christ in Old Testament and New. Isaiah promised that one would come who was the servant of the Lord. The servant. And Paul would recognize this. In fact, Jesus himself would say, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. What would ever motivate anybody to serve in this official capacity or to serve in any capacity in a church? It is to look past the office or the obligation to the one who represents it, none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says it this way, that we should have this mind in us that was in Christ Jesus who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient Obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And God highly exalted him on account of that. Like, that's what God values. That's what God honors. What we need a clearer picture of around here is not what are the needs, who are the people, what do pastors do versus what deacons do. We just need a clearer view of our Lord Jesus as the one who served us by laying down his life for our sin, rising again to give us all that we need for eternal life to come. 
And when we see that clearly, we are most inclined to serve. I love the way one author put it. He says, Jesus is the king of kings and the deacon of deacons. He is the servant of servants. And that is why we as a church family, friends, are constantly looking to Jesus in his word, in his word preached, and in his word signified. 